This is a HeadGum Podcast. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Inside Voices. I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. My guest today is Emily Vanderwerf. So if I'm being honest, I feel like I am not 100% qualified to talk about the things we're going to talk about today on the show. Because Emily has a very different story than a lot of the guests we've had on. She's not a comedian or an actor. She's first and foremost a writer, and over the years has been one of my very favorite television critics to read. You might have read her work on the AV Club back in the day or currently on Vox. And, of course, she's made podcasts, like her interview show, I Think You're Interesting, her television history show, Primetime, and her scripted true crime satire, Arden. Also, Emily is trans. So the voice is a very personal matter for her, more personal than it is to most, which of course made me very curious to hear her perspective on her own voice. When I hear my voice, I hear a person who doesn't exist. Nobody else hears my old voice but me. Mm -hmm. But I hear my old voice, which like technically I could, I could like, if I really tried, I could still do. I can feel where it lives. But shifting down there is like a lot of work now. But so I I know my voice is like basically an alto. I've like made it an alto. My voice is totally within the normal range of voices for a woman of my height and size and all of that. But to me, I hear my voice. I'm when I listen to this podcast, if I listen to this podcast, I'm just gonna hear the man I presented as for 37 years. Um, and that voice was my voice for a long period of coming out, starting hormones, etc. You listen to the last year of, I think you're interesting, my old, my old show with Vox. Um, and that's a, basically most of those episodes were recorded after I'd come out to myself. And I had to go on every week and be like, hi, I'm old name Vanderwerf. Uh, and this is, I think you're interesting. I'm the I, and I think you're interesting. And like, I just had to plow through it every week. Like you hear me, the series finale of that, I was talking to Mahershala Ali, one of the great voices in the biz. And like, you hear me talking to him and like, that's me on two months of hormones talking to Mahershala Ali, like being aware of what's to come. Also knowing this is kind of the end of the line for the show, at least in that incarnation. And my voice, I just like, I lost sight of it. I got I, I got so wrapped up in it. And now when I listen to my voice, I just hear him. And um, that's a hard thing to do. God, I hope it's soothing. I don't know. I, I, but yeah, 
I do a lot of scenarios where I talk about my my voice and 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 uh, I try to be. I try to be like I'm reading you a bedtime story. So. That's what a nice quality. Yeah, they say that that's a that's a trick for VO that a buddy of mine taught me is uh, if you're recording alone in a room, mm-hmm. pull up a picture of a friend or someone you know or love or care about, and look at it while you're doing the VO, like you're talking to them, but you're saying you conduct your life as if you're reading everyone a bedtime story when yeah, you're talking. Yeah, and you know, um, I you know what a friend of mine described my voice as very maternal. So I'll say that too. I think I have a maternal voice. I feel that. This feels like a warm hug right now. I'm your mom, Kevin. Yeah, and I want you to take <laughs> care of me. Yeah. Emily! <laughs> I'm going to get you some soup. I know you're not feeling the best after a hard day at school, slugger. Hey, so. hey, and I would love nothing more. <laughs> uh, so maybe a hopefully, a hopefully em- Emily Vanderworth has a hopefully soothing voice. Yes. For most of my childhood... I had a very high voice. And I don't know if that was like me trying to make it artificially high. You know, you think about the voice that a little boy has because the world read me as a little boy. And that's like kind of, there's not like, it's obviously a higher pitched voice than a man's voice, but it uh, has that feeling of like kind of raspy uh, excitability, you know? And I was always kind of like being, I'd like talk like this, you know? And like, Nobody really called me on it. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, I kind of got my first crush on a girl and she was a soprano and I could sing soprano still in the fifth grade. So I just was like, I'm going to sing soprano so I can be just like her. Like that was my way of having a crush on a girl was to like try to turn myself into her, which I should have figured something out. (laughs) And then my voice started to lower and I was in alto and then like... And then once it started to lower, I just wanted it to be as low as it could go. And like I, I, I pushed it all the way down. And uh, if you listen to old clips of my voice, they're very like kind of not, not, not super low, but they're rumbly. Like the pitch that I use now to speak is not that far off my old speaking pitch, but the way I contoured my voice pushed it deeper. And now I'm trying to push it higher. I mean, I think I'm pretty good at that, but I also, you know, I'm not an expert genius at it. So yeah, when I was, when I, the first 37 years of my life, I just, I had what people told me was a, a good radio voice or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always like to do like impressions of authoritative figures. Um, one of my heroes growing up was Dave Coulier. And like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> a hero. <laughs> uh, yeah. And like, I, I don't know that he was my hero, but like, he was definitely like, I was like, I want to do voices like he does. Oh. But I wasn't like very good at it. There were a few people I could do an impression of, mostly Dave Coulier characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Woodchuck <laughs> Chuck. Yeah, exactly. Like, I had an amazing. Jackalope from America's Funniest People (laughs) that I just, I did all the time until my parents made me stop because it was very annoying. But I started podcasting really early. My wife and I started our our old podcast TV on the internet, which you can no longer find on the internet. I was looking for Emily and it was scrubbed. Yeah, we scrubbed it. We scrubbed it because we don't know what we said on that thing and we want to make sure. (laughs) Describe what podcasts were in 2009 too. Really, it was just like, I heard a bunch of podcasts that were just like some people sat around a microphone and they were friends and they joked about stuff. And I was like, there isn't really a show like that about TV, so I'm going to start one. Yeah, and you were one of 14 at the time. <laughs> yeah, and my wife and I started this show, and it was really poor sound quality. Those first episodes you could barely hear. Well, are we talking like, like a blue snowball in the middle oh, of a coffee God, table? Oh, God, it was or... not even that. It was like a $15 microphone we bought at Best Buy. Ooh. And then we just both sat close to it and talked. 
I didn't figure out about levels. I didn't figure about any of that to like five episodes in. People would be like, this is interesting, but I can't hear a thing you're saying. So I had been podcasting since 2009. We did that show semi-regularly. We did probably one episode a month for many years. Then my wife left. Uh, my wife got a job at the LA Times. They didn't allow her to do podcasting anymore. And I was like, I think my podcast days are over. But like I had developed this this good masculine speaking voice for a radio situation. Yeah, because you were probably yeah. getting used to listening to yeah. it and editing yeah. it yourself. So you probably made peace with the gap between what you wanted to sound like, what you thought you sounded like, yeah. and what you actually sounded like. I hated my voice. I hated, hated, hated it. Really? Uh, but I was like, objectively speaking, this is a good radio voice. And I would like, <laughs> uh, yes, because I spent so many years editing that show. And then when I got to, to do I Think You're Interesting, which was the first podcast I did at Vox... Like, I just was like, okay, yeah, this is my voice. I honestly think if you listen to old episodes of that show, especially from the uh, 2017 days, like those episodes, right, like kind of right before I came out are very, um, there's a depressive air to them. Like my voice, it, my voice is soothing and, and, and quiet, but there's also like, I hear how tired and sad I am. I don't know if the audience does. One of the things I think is true of, of after I came out is, and engaged with the the parts of my brain that were all woman uh, is I became like a much better interviewer and I'm, but also a much better, like there, I don't sound as sad, you know, I'm definitely like having to put on airs, but I became a lot more cognizant of the fact that I was playing a character hmm. toward the end of, uh, I think you're interesting. And like, I played that character a lot better. It eventually became very difficult to play that character um, toward the end of that time. And then like literally the day after I came out publicly, I was like, I'm going to kind of phase into presenting full-time female and just immediately, you know, full speed ahead, mm -hmm. which meant I, I had to start voice training. I just, I had to have a voice that fit how I wanted to present to the world. Yeah. When I was um, growing up, like I remember I would hear recordings of my voice. And this is not an uncommon phenomenon. You know, people would be like, I don't sound like that. But I would be like, I viscerally just don't like the way I sound. People tell me I sound good. If I step outside of myself long enough and to really listen to myself, I realize I sound good. I had a ton of choral vocal training. So like I had a really great command over my instruments, which has helped me in voice training because it was just like, oh, I, you already kind of know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I had a really really a lot of great command over my voice, I couldn't stand to listen to it. As someone who's known you throughout this process too, just like right before, if I'm not mistaken, when did we meet? 2017? End of 2017 yeah, is we, when we met. Yeah, we met end of 2017. It was I was in one of the first few episodes of GCF, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. your other podcast. That's right. And the, um, the podcast that shall not be named on this podcast. Oh, we only say GCF. We don't spell it out. Yeah, we would never do that. <laughs> but I do have an anecdotal sense of better accessibility okay. to you too, yeah. emotionally, in yeah. terms of... Who you were at the beginning of of that, in the beginning of my relationship with you personally, to who you are as a person. Not, not even all, all you know, voice work and professional stuff mm -hmm. and podcast stuff aside, there is sort of a buoyancy and lightness and joy and confidence. Mm -hmm. Truth be told, that was not as present and prevalent in how you present it, obviously, and how you present it back then, but then just like, I think also in who you were. And I don't know if that's like with new people that you're meeting or if that was the case with old people as well, mm -hmm. but there is 
something about the fact that, yeah, there's just a much larger openness to you now. I was feeling down. We recorded the Arden season two credits and I was feeling down about the sound of my voice there. And then I went and listened to the season one credits. And not only is my voice quite different, but my voice back then just sounds kind of, because I recorded those before coming out and my voice back then just sounds kind of, yes, this is the show. And like, that's me doing an impression of my old self. Now, uh, Emily, it's possible that we have a clip. You have a clip? That could illustrate this very contrast. <sighs> These are the season one credits for your podcast, Arden. Arden is created by oh Todd Vanderwerf, Christopher Dole, and Sarah Gollum. <laughs> this week's episode was written by those same three people. Our audio engineer was Elizabeth Aubert. Our editor this week was Elizabeth Aubert and Christopher Dole. The score is by Christopher Hatfield. The logo is by Dylan Farr. Well, how does this know if how you're tired I sound? Or even if you're not in one. There's an ironic detachment to it. It feels like a Rod Serling thing. Yeah. Where this is a drama pod, so I'm playing yeah. this role of the kind of deadpan voiceover narrator. Yeah. This when is the I, story. When I say, or even if you want to drive us from the face of the internet, like there's a lilt there that I learned to perform. I know that like, obviously like I wasn't consciously doing that, but I learned to perform that kind of not too threatening male sarcasm was a thing that I could turn hmm. on. I could turn up just a little bit. And now, like, I still have that that in my arsenal. So if I'm going to be sarcastic, but if now if I'm going to be sarcastic, I have to overdo it because people don't understand <laughs> that women can be sarcastic. <laughs> I feel that. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, you, you have to, there's so many different compromises or overcorrections mm -hmm. you have to do now to uh, readjust and, and rearticulate to, to get back to what was like a natural zero. It's like you're having to, find your center again and then find control of it it's a, does it feel and, and forgive me if this is an inappropriate metaphor but does it feel now like writing with your left hand where it's like the words are the same and the penmanship is eventually going to be the same but i'm having to relearn like how to make a t and how to make an a oh, yeah. in the way that i want it to look and I'm, how i want to communicate it with other people yeah most of what i've had to do is relearn how I say things, not like the physical placement of where I say things. If you measure the pitch of that voice on the Arden podcast versus the the pitch I'm using right now, mm -hmm. this pitch is higher, but it's two and a half, three steps higher. It's not that much higher, but it the way that I say things, the elongated vowels and the kind of the way that things go up and all over. And sometimes I end a sentence like this and like that is stuff I had to teach myself. And also, I'm not always sure about teaching myself that stuff because that is stuff that like our culture has coded as feminine. And like the gender binary is this weird concept that we all are imprisoned by. And I'm like, how much do I want to live up to it? How much? But also if I still was using that voice, I would feel terrible. I feel terrible about this voice, and this oh, voice is you pretty do? good. I think this voice is terrific, Thank Emily. You. Thank you. I think it feels cozy in a home, Mom. Yeah. Mom. Yeah. Remember me, Mom? Your little slugger. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to contrast that in credits with the in credits for a more recent season. Yeah, of this Arden. is our new season, and these are really long, so feel free to cut them off. These are just a. It's a quick 13 and a half minutes dear listener <laughs> we usually cut this part of the podcast down but not this time here we go arden season two episode one to be a or not to be a 
was written by Emily Vanderwerf, Christopher Dole, and Sarah Golub, and directed by Sarah Golub. Our recording engineer was Ernesto Hurtado, and the episode was recorded at the Rebel Talk Network Studios of Los Angeles. It was edited by Christopher Dole. What do you hear now in, in your own voice? If you were to ask me to, to gender that voice, I would gender it male. I also feel like when um, people see me, when I use my voice, I don't get – that voice does not get read as male ever. And it's a, it's, a, it's a learning curve for every trans woman because you still have the voice you were born with. And one of the things that's true of a lot of trans women is they look in the mirror and they see themselves and they still see the old self. And uh, their face, they're like, it hasn't changed that much. And yet if you stack two photos two years apart next to each other, they look enormously different. I don't have that. I had no relationship to the way I used to look. And now I like look at myself and I'm like, oh, I look like myself. And like I feel finally like I look like myself. Or when you play those credits, I hear there's a more an effortlessness to it that I didn't have in the first season credits. But I still am like, that's a, that's a, that's a guy. No, it's a guy saying all that. Mm. Well, it's good to know no matter where you are on the gender spectrum or non-binary that we'll all be a little disappointed with how we sound (laughs) perpetually. That's a comfort that we all share in to some degree. And it's also like I hear it from the inside of my head and your head makes everything sound lower than it actually sounds. So whatever you're hearing right now, whatever this microphone is picking up right now, inside my head, it sounds like I'm down here, you know, and that's that's kind of a mindfuck. It, uh, it's like how they say, if you saw yourself walking down the street, mm-hmm. you may not recognize yourself because your perception in the mirror is so vastly different than what you would look like from a side angle or from a different POV. So the same kind of goes with your voice, too, to some degree. Yeah. If you saw yourself walking down the street, then you would need Rod Serling. Like, that would be when you'd call him That's in. right. Yeah. And we'd have to go back to the season one credits of Arden. <laughs> <laughs> Is the goal with voice stuff to pass in that sense? Or do you want to be a woman who is also proudly known as trans? For me, I would I would like to have a voice that in most situations passes. It just makes my life easier. I still get read as male over the phone a lot. And some of that is the way that cell phones work. For instance, Kate Blanchett has a very low voice. She probably gets read as male a lot over the phone, but probably doesn't think twice about it. For me, it's more fraught. Um, it's happened to my wife. It's it's probably happened to every woman on the planet. They make a cell phone call and the person on the other end says, hello, sir, because like cell phones make our voices sound more masculine for whatever reason. That is tricky because it doesn't happen to me like in a similar situation, like in a fast food drive through People always are like, hello, ma'am. The other thing that I just like, I feel bad about is like, why should I have to have a voice that passes for female? Why should I have to put in all that work? If we can accept that that gender is this thing that's innate in all of us. And we like, if we fumble toward it, we can figure it out. But also that like a lot of the rules we have around gender are arbitrary and made up. Like, why shouldn't I be able to talk down here? But also... The second I did that, it fucked me up so much I stopped being able to say a sentence. Like, I could not do it. It threw my brain off to hear that voice again. Like, it was like hearing a ghost. And and it's a strange thing, I mm-hmm. must imagine, to almost uh, have the ability, if you wanted to, to do an impression of the old you. Oh, yeah. And of your former self. I have an awesome Todd Vanderwerf impression. <laughs> 
just an amazing <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah, you got like the the hand gestures down I and the facial expressions. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. So I I want, I'm very curious as to what voice training is like. Mm. Like you were alluding to before, it's different for every trans person and mm-hmm. every trans woman just based on what you're w- working with vocal cord wise and physically. For you, how did it work itself out? How did you even start that process of voice training? So the thing that surprised me was, actually this is a thing that happened. My wife said to me that after I came out, I started talking in what was an early version of this voice. I didn't even mean to do it. It was just like a lot of that heaviness that was in my old voice lifted up. So even when I just a couple minutes ago dropped into my old voice, that was a modified version of the voice we heard on those season one credits. So like I was already like, and my wife was like, your your vocal tone is lighter. Like my pitch was still pretty deep, but the tone was, there was a little more of a lilt to it. So I was, when I went into voice training, I was already there. And my voice therapist was like, between this and your, your, your singing training, it's probably not going to take me too long to get you to a place we're both happy with. I went in there because I wanted to have what's called vocal feminization surgery, which is they go in and they cut up, open your voice box and they artificially shorten the vocal cords to make it more like a cis woman's voice box. It's very dangerous surgery and you basically can't talk for a month. And then you're supposed to use your voice very limited fashion for like three months. And I use my voice a lot, but I was willing to sacrifice that. But because it's so invasive, they won't just approve it. You have to go and try and do vocal training. And the thing that really screwed me up is at the end of vocal training, my coach was like, you're in great shape. I have done as much for you as surgery could have. And I was like, no, (laughs) that's impossible. Because if I had surgery, I'd be up here all the time and that would be good. And like, that would be fun, but no, a big thing that a lot of people don't realize is that like your voice is kind of tied to the frame of your body. Um, I'm tall. So I have a lower voice for a woman, but so does Gwendolyn Christie. Who's taller than me. Her voice is actually slightly lower than mine. You would never read her as male though. Um, there's all these women who are tall, um, even like Taylor Swift, who we think of as like a, having a very feminine voice. She has a pretty low voice just in terms of like how she's pitched. When she goes soprano in her songs, it's a lot of it's auto-tuned. In all of our heads, we have a stereotypical male voice and a stereotypical female voice, but they're actually quite different from most actual male and female voices. Um, and I can't even imagine what it's like trying to craft an androgynous voice that hits like some middle place where nobody can read it. So the pitch I was at on my masculine voice was already like on the lower cusp of what we can read as feminine. And so she was like, we're going to push you two, three steps higher. And that's where I'm living at now. Mostly it's going to be about phrasing. If you think about a song, Kevin obviously knows what I'm talking about already. But if you think about a song, as you're singing the lyrics to... um, I'm going to try to think of a public domain song so you don't have to pay for anything. Row your boat? Yeah, row, row, row your boat. Hey, we'll we'll buy the rights to some Rolling Stones song if you want to sing that. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going like, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. That's very different from row, row, row your boat. Like the phrasing of it and where you put the emphasis and how you say each word, that's the trick 
That's the main difference between a female voice and a male voice. Stereotypical, again, there are many different kinds of female voices, many different kinds of male voices, but... It's almost like a, a, a false binary, but a binary between staccato and legato. Yeah. Like one ways. of the things that, uh, if you look on YouTube, there's a million voice tutorial videos. And one of the ones that a lot of people find helpful is a cis gay man who does an amazing women's voice. And he can, like, like stereotypical... 24-year-old girl out with her girlfriends at the club. Yeah, that voice, you know? And he does it perfectly. I could not do it as well as him. But, like, part of it is, like, within the cis gay community, like, there is there's a healthy overlap with the straight woman community. You know what I mean? Honestly, one of the biggest things that happened for me was I just started hanging out with more women. And now, like, most of my peers are women. All of my peers are women. But most of the people I talk to are women. Most of the people I hang out with are women. And I've just naturally started to pick up some of their tics and, like, speaking habits. Because the people you hang out with influence the way you speak. That's the reason the guy on YouTube can do such a great women's voice, because he hangs out with a lot of women. A lot of male voices are down in the chest. And if you like put a hand on your body as you speak, you'll feel where your voice is resonating. And everybody resonates everywhere, but a traditional male voice resonates way more down. And you'll feel it in like, is this the breastbone? You'll feel it in the breastbone sort of vibrating. But like if you're a female voice tends to resonate up here. And of course, all voices resonate in both places, but like I'm resonating way more right here than I am down here. And I'm only down here when I kind of get into the lower pitch of my voice. Like I have successfully, whatever I've done to my brain, I've successfully forced it to like talk this way. Even when I'm a little bit lower, it's just kind of like this, where it's just, you know, like there's still, there's still, I think, I think there's still a feminine lilt to it. Let's take a break from Emily's hopefully soothing voice, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Inside Voices. So in 2017, Emily starts her podcast, I Think You're Interesting, an interview show whose premise you can already guess. The suggestion to start the show came from Ezra Klein, co-founder of Vox, after admiring the quality of Emily's print interviews for years. And for Emily, the show functioned for her the way this very show you're listening to right now functions for me, as a professional pretense to connect with people you admire. The initial impetus for it was I was going to be talking to... Uh, people from arts and entertainment that I thought were interesting, hence the title. Uh, one of the funny things about it was when the show was not quite connecting um, and the numbers were kind of bad, we like did a little research on why people didn't like it and they were confused by the title. 
they were like, well, I don't, I don't think this person is interesting. <laughs> like, so like, it would be like, oh, I think you're interesting with Damon Lindelof. We had him on um, once and uh, people, the people would be like, I don't think Damon Lindelof is interesting. I'd never watched Leftovers. And like, they were hearing, I think you're interesting and thinking it was talking about them. And so we talked about the impetus of talking about. Is the podcast title me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, what a mistake. What a, what a common mistake for anyone to make. And I, uh, and we were, the conversation about changing the title of the show is what led to the creation of Primetime, which is kind of funny. It was this thing I did on my own. I talked to a lot of great people on it. It took us a while to figure out what the show was because there's so many interview podcasts. And for too long in that show, it was just me interviewing the person about their current project. A big breakthrough for me was an episode we did with Kelly Martin. She was on a TBS show and we were talking about the TBS show for like the first five, 10 minutes. And it was fine. She was fine. She was talking about how she was like a working mother and all this stuff. And I just was like, I don't care about this. I want to talk about everything else she's done. So I was like, you were in a show with Lucille Ball when you were six. And she told me the story of that. And I was like, oh, this is the show. I think the thing that bothered me most about that show was that I wasn't the main girl, which I auditioned for. I always... This is like the thing as a child actor, you audition for the main kid. And mm-hmm. if you don't get that part, you get to be their friend. Yeah. So Jenny Lewis okay. got to be Lucille Ball's granddaughter right. and I got to be her friend. And then True Beverly Hills, Jenny Lewis got to be Shelley Long's daughter. I got to be her friend. So like <laughs> that went on for many years, me and Jenny Lewis. Um, Jenny would always kind of have the edge over me. So she was my, I always called her my nemesis growing up, which is hilarious because she's super nice. And I actually ran into her not that long ago and it was really fun to see her. But as a kid, I was just like, I got to be her at this part. I want her to be my friend for a change. (laughs) This is just somebody like who's got an interesting and long career just telling me stories. And that was the first episode where I felt like we really cracked it. And then going forward, we kind of, kept moving more toward that. Didn't always work, didn't always get there. Uh, But again, I think in the last year of that show, when we had kind of what the format was, but also I was more comfortable in my own skin, we launched that as a way for me to interview celebrities. Then uh, I was like very cautious to everyone. This is going to take three years to catch on. It did take three years to catch Mm. on. But by the time we hit the third year, the show was over. So what was best case scenario with those interview situations? Because I'm now, uh, you know, even on this show Mm -hmm. in the first time doing like a one-on-one situation. And I've interviewed people one-on-one before on other shows occasionally. And I know what I want to happen on this show for a lot of these people, though. There's a lot of pre-existing relationship. But when you roll up into, say, the hotel room with a Gene Smart or mm-hmm. a Ryan Murphy, mm-hmm. and they're doing a whole press blitz, and you're one of the stops, what do you want to happen? What do you want them to think about you? What do you want their experience to be? What do you want to walk away with from that? Well, Ryan Murphy, was that was our first episode, and that, to me, was an ideal because he told us a bunch of stuff he'd told nobody else. And at the end of it, he was like, I felt like I just got through therapy. And I was like, great. That's a compliment, yeah, right? Yeah. And like that, uh, that kind of set an unrealistic expectation for me because we didn't quite hit that again for several episodes. Like it took us a while to get back to that place. Yeah. Like that was a thing where he had never done a podcast interview before. That was his first one. After that, he ended up doing a bunch of podcasts uh, for a different projects, but that was, that was for the show Feud. And he... I had to kind of cajole his people. I had to kind of like like pull in every favor I could think of, but like that was great. 
And then there were just so many other times when somebody would come in on their press blitz and I would start asking a couple questions about the project they were doing to sort of appease the publicist. And we'd just get off on a tangent and just talk about that for the rest of the show. Yeah, because they don't care. And people did not care about their current project. And I was like, oh, I need to just find a way to make this more universally applicable. And that was tricky to do sometimes. Yeah, what do you think your distinct interview style because obviously you were doing this before as a culture writer in print but what if you had to describe your distinct interview style what would that be i think my questions tend to be more interesting than the questions they get from other people because i really do try to think of like what are people going to ask and how can i not ask that my goal was always to like escape from what everybody else was asking and that sometimes had disastrous results (laughs) Really? Like, uh, we interviewed Jonathan Price on okay. the show. One of the popes. Yeah, he he was promoting the wife. I love Jonathan Price. Mm-hmm. What we did was we did a format we had, which was called Firsts. And we did like the first time you were an actor, the first time you were, and he was delightful and charming. And then I was like, the first time you did blah, blah, blah. And he ended by saying, and that was my first musical, Miss Saigon. And I was like, I know you were in Miss Saigon. I know there was controversy around that. I want to talk And I asked him about the yellow face controversy around his casting. And he just like gave this long answer that ate up a whole bunch of time and like was kind of internally inconsistent. And I was like, I need to push him on a lot of this, but also I don't have the time to push him on a lot of this or we're not going to get to the rest of the questions. So I just bailed on that section. We had to cut it and it like ended up making the episode a little short, but like. Yeah, and my producer uh, at the time, my producer at the time, a wonderful woman named Bridget Armstrong, uh, was like, "You should have pushed him on that more." And I was like, "I know I should have, but like, I I prioritize being able to do these other questions because I wanted to talk about Game of Thrones and blah blah blah." It was a situation where trying to go off the beaten path, he was not prepared for that question at all, mm-hmm. so he just rambled, and uh, I it was a thing where I probably should have reined it in, but but basically the idea was to ask the questions they weren't being asked and hope that they had fresh and invigorating answers. And um, I feel like we got better at it. One of my favorite episodes from the last run of the show is we talked to Mike Schur, the guy who created uh, Good Place, Parks and Rec. He worked on The Office and just like we asked him how to write a sitcom. I just was like, I want to know what is your process for writing a sitcom? What makes a hit? And like he gave some of the best advice I've ever heard. We made a bunch of mistakes. We wanted Leslie Knope to be like a person who's really smart, really capable, and just totally unsavvy about sort of politics. And she was going to try to take on a sort of political system from the inside and was going to fail because she didn't know anything. She wasn't like a cutthroat evil manipulator, right? What ended up happening is everyone rolled their eyes at her. And we were a little bit influenced by The Office too and people rolling their eyes at Michael Scott. And then what happened is she came off as being like a bimbo or something. That word was actually used, which was so horrifying because we pitched the show to NBC as like, this is a show about a a strong-willed, capable, feminist, sort of forward-thinking woman. And to hear the word bimbo applied to that character was – it was awful. It was truly awful. So we changed the system of the way we represented mostly people reacting to her instead of rolling their eyes – They were just like, she's better than we are at this thing. So whatever she says, we'll just do this. So doing that helped the show a tremendous amount. But it also meant that we had no internal conflict (laughs) because everybody everybody just liked Leslie. And Leslie and Ron fought sometimes, but they were fundamentally decent to each other. And and so we had no internal conflict. And it was like, well, now the point of this is like, this is an us versus them. It's not a 
A versus B versus C versus D in terms of conflict. It's us versus them. Us is the Parks Department, and them is going to be some other people. And those people could be the citizens who were obnoxious. It could be the library, which for some reason everybody hated. It could be whoever. And so we we got our conflict through outside invading hordes, right? We were really interested in process over personality. We tried to skew toward having women and people of color and LGBTQ people on. That was part of our mission statement. They were happy to talk about process because they always get asked, what's it like being a woman and a director? And like, yeah, we would ask variations on that question. I'm sure if you go through the run of that show, you'll find a million times I asked something like that. So much more often, I was just like, I want to know how you do this. And they don't get asked that question a lot because junket interviews tend to be, what's it like being a woman and a director? Is Hollywood sexist? Have you experienced Hollywood sexism? They have an answer that is diplomatic and designed to keep their career rolling while also acknowledging the realities of Hollywood sexism. And it's going to be too pat. Mm. I mean, what's one question about your experience as a trans woman that you would love to never be asked again? I guess I I wish that I was not asked so often um, questions that sort of phrase my coming out as a eureka moment, a before and after. Because the longer I get into this, the more I realize that like I was a woman my whole life. I just was like playing keep away with myself. But it is the thing that is hardest for cis people to understand is like, it feels like a sudden decision I made one day. And it wasn't. It was a long process of coming to terms with a part of my identity that I tried to keep hidden. Rather than an act of novelty or creativity on your part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that idea that like, that idea that kind of got peddled a lot uh, in the wake of Caitlyn Jenner coming out, where it's just like, oh, this is a thing that an old, rich, white person is doing for fun. And that's a t- terrible, destructive idea. But the way the media frames this as like a story about you're one thing and then you're another thing feeds into that. I started I Think You're Interesting in early 2017, and I kind of think of summer 2016 to spring 2018 being this window of time when I was edging up to coming out. And so I did the first year-ish of I Think You're Interesting in that space. And that first year of the show, I think, is – I don't think it's bad. Like, I think it's a good podcast, but, like – Some of it is infected by the thing that happens to all young podcasts, which is you're figuring out what the show is. Then I was increasingly detached from myself. That made me a worse interviewer than I would become. And I actually can, the reason I can pin down exactly the day when I came out to my therapist is because I was late to that therapy session because I was recording an episode of I Think You're Interesting. So if I go back through my email at work where I would set up all these interviews and I looked for what day we had that recording, I can tell you precisely the day when I came out was the day we recorded the Louis Anderson episode of I Think You're Interesting. And if you listen to that episode, you hear me like on the verge of coming out as a trans woman to my therapist and Louis Anderson and I are talking about a role where he's playing a woman and like, I'm being like very complimentary to him. And then like, there's a point where he talks about uh, uh, women's shoes being uncomfortable and that being the one thing he doesn't like. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't think I could ever wear those shoes. Now I wear them all the time. So (laughs) take that Louis. The image of a guy in a dress in television has this long history of like 
Oh, like it sort of starts with Milton Berle in a lot yes, of ways. Like he'd, absolutely. He'd march out and it, would, it was always played for laughs. And um, we've kind of uh, realized how harmful that could be in some ways to, sure. to some people. But Christine was never, never. Uh, never conceived of as a joke. And like that was striking to me the first time I saw the show. And yeah. I'm wondering like what those conversations were like. I never for once played a male in the part. And when I yeah, occasionally... Yeah get close to it I always see it but I don't do it mm-hmm. I'm I get when I get ready I'm getting prepared to you know flick my hair mm. you know and purse my lips as my mom did I think you have ticks as humans so I stole all my mom's nuance and ticks mm. and put them on me to disguise Louis Anderson to get him out of there yeah um, but yeah then the the second year of that show, like I had Nico Case on and Nico Case, I'm trying to relate to her as two women and she's not doing that because she has no idea. She thinks I'm a guy. And like, there's a tension to that episode that I think is driven in an interesting way by like, now you know this knowledge about, oh, the person conducting this interview is also a woman. Nico Case doesn't know that, but I do as a future citizen of the world. What intrigues you about that idea of of the masculine and the feminine, and then also like sort of the idea that that gender is, um, you know, a construct. There's this weird feeling that people are raised with that women are somehow a subspecies of mankind, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, rules a lot of what we do. But really, the possibility of masculine and feminine is in every person. And so kind of striking the right balance between those two things and honoring both of those things is 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 a very healthy place to go. There's a certain not wanting to ask permission to do things and deciding that you can give yourself permission. That's a very freeing moment in a person's life. The last year of that show, I think, became a much better show because we knew the show at that point. But also, like, I was a much better interviewer because I was much more engaged in what people were talking about, much more interested in what they were talking about, and much more in tune with my own feelings about whatever it was we were we were saying. I mean, man, that reminds me of – this is an insight I refer to all the time. It's not mine. I stole it from someone. I don't know whose it is. But it's like when you watch a movie or a television show, it's like watching two movies or two television shows. One is the movie. Mm-hmm. And then the second is the documentary about the people who made it. And you can see all of that within the thing. You can see what the writer was most interested in at the time or what that particular actress was going through or whatever the case may be. And so I think your interesting does sort of function as a documentary or a journal for you Mm -hmm. in that coming out process. And in, in, in that sense, and you mark time by certain episodes. Yeah. And there's a, there's a third version of it, which is when you listen to that, what do you think about me? The third version of it is the one that you are perceiving as opposed to what the one that actually exists. And like the one that you're perceiving now is very different because you know what's coming for me versus what you would have perceived if you were listening in 2018. What? responsibility do you feel in terms of self-disclosure and vulnerability? Because like I said before, it is something that I feel is pretty prevalent in a lot of your work, even from the beginning, even when you were going by an old name, it felt like something that was, I feel like readers always got a sense of who you were. And it's different on something like an interview podcast, or even something like primetime that's a little more polished or produced. But I'm just wondering, especially now when there are people that feel 
seen just by your existence and the fact of your like visibility and where you are and the platform that you have. I wonder, I'm, I'm just wondering what responsibility you feel to keep people in the loop in, in your life in that sense. I wrestle with that a lot more than I did before I came out. There's a thing I wrote in my coming out essay, The Catastrophist, that basically said, I would tell people anything because I knew I wasn't telling them this one thing. So my reviews were just often deeply personal. And a thing that I found is a lot of people responded to a th- something in my writing, especially at the AV club that they said was deeply sad and like felt like I was going through something. Like I would never find contentment, blah, blah, blah. It felt to a lot of people like depression. And I've discovered that a lot of closeted trans women identified with my AV club writing, especially. When I got to Vox, I got started getting edited a little more heavily. It got a little bit more polished and professional, but I was still doing some of that. Um, my review of Fleabag season two is all about how I used to believe I was a television character. <laughs> like, like there, there just there's a lot of stuff that I I was doing um, that I was doing because I knew I wasn't ever going to tell people. There's this part of my brain that constantly thinks it would be better to be a woman, but we're all just thinking about that, right? And then I was like. There's a funny thing that happens to trans women, especially right when they come out, where they're like, well, I mean, I probably would prefer to be a woman. I probably am a woman, but women are like sacred. How could I possibly be worthy of being a woman? And then you get further into transition and you're like, oh, women are just like people and just bad, like everybody else. <laughs> um, and then you're like, oh, no, they're great. And I'm also pretty okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think that. The fact that I was not telling people this one thing meant that I could tell everyone anything else. And now I sometimes feel like I'm monetizing my identity, like I'm selling myself out for the purpose of creating content. I think that I feel this differently about this than a lot of journalists would because I primarily think of myself as a writer before I think of myself as a journalist. Writing a personal essay is pretty similar to me uh, to writing a season of Arden. And we don't blink twice at someone who writes fiction, putting a lot of themselves into their work. So I do think that there is value to what I do, but I do, I'm also like, when I write a personal essay, I'm pretty clearly saying, this is me. When I write a season of Arden, you have to kind of pull apart the layers to be like, okay, what was Emily saying here versus what was Sarah saying here versus what was Chris saying here? That is the thing I'm wrestling with more and more is, do I have a private life? Do I get to have a private life? Because the expectations set for me by this previous version of myself are, I talk about everything and everything is fair game. And maybe I don't want some things to be fair game. You know, maybe I want some things to be private. Maybe I want a life of my own. And that's not a question I've ever had to answer before. I was wondering, Emily, if you could end this episode by doing us the honor of reading a selection from your essay from June of 2019, the Catastrophist, or Colin on coming out as trans at 37. I just want to say I'm very proud of this essay. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. I worked very hard on it. Hey, I didn't write this essay, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud <laughs> of you. you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It took me 38 years to write it, yeah. and it was, um, it was a lot of work. So, okay. I'm beginning to read now. So let me start over. My name is Emily Vanderwerf. I fought hard for that name, as hard as I've ever fought for anything in my life. Now that I have it, I'm so scared of losing it. So I'm telling you, in hopes you will bear it forward and carry it in your heart. 
Emily Vandorf, I really like your voice. And it is not hopefully soothing, it is soothing. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks for sharing it with me, friend. Let's take a nap. Let's take a nap, Mom. I love you. (laughs) And dinner will be ready when you wake up. (gasps) Yay! With Pop-Tarts? Soup. Okay. (laughs) Second best thing. (laughs) Emily Vanderwerf has a soothing voice. And you can listen to that voice on episodes of I Think You're Interesting, Primetime, and Arden, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode of Inside Voices was produced by me. Our theme music is by Pam Atori. I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices. That was a HeadGum Podcast.